From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Eliza Knight about her new novel, Starring Adele Astaire. There's no video of Adele anywhere, but I'm hoping that some obscure person will be going through their attic after having read this book and find this reel that is like this recording of them dancing together that no one's ever heard of. But the reality dream is probably just that I really want people to know who she was and to remember her and remember her so that her legacy stays alive as a woman performer who was helpful to other women performers. And I just want to be able to keep her alive, basically. We're talking about the legacy of Adele and Fred Astaire, the way history favors some while obscuring others, and the possibilities of reclamation through historical fiction. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. If you're enjoying the type of content you get here at Riverside Chats, conversations that go in-depth on art, politics, and everything in between, please consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can find a link in the show notes that allows you to give a recurring or single amount, whatever you're comfortable with, whatever you think the show is worth, which maybe is nothing. In which case, ouch, if you think this is a valuable part of your week, then we would appreciate the support so we can continue to give you the quality that you came here for in the first place. Thank you for considering supporting Riverside Chats and enjoy the show. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Because Nebraska has been the birthplace of a relatively small number of Hollywood legends, you end up hearing the same names over and over again. And one name that I'd imagine anyone listening to this has heard of, whether or not they've watched the movies, is Fred Astaire. Astaire was born in Omaha in 1899, went on to star in stage and screen in a number of highly acclaimed musicals in Hollywood's golden age, such as Top Hat and Swing Time. Here's a clip from Swing Time. I'm left without a penny, the wolf won't scream. He left me my feet and soul. I put them down on anything but the La Belle. A perfectly swell romance Never gonna dance Never gonna dance Only gonna love Never gonna dance What you may not know is that Fred Astaire had a sister, Adele Astaire, who was also a successful dancer. My guest today is Eliza Knight, whose new novel is starring Adele Astaire, delving into the life and career of this often overlooked historical figure. Here is our conversation. So uh, writing about historical people either comes from curiosity or passion. It seems like for you, it's rooted in kind of this passion that you've had for a lot of your life. So tell me about how did you fall in love with history and the stories of history? Sure. So my dad is like a huge history buff. So as I was growing up, we um, lived near D.C. So we went to D.C. all the time. I spent a lot of my weekends in museums. And then we would often watch historical documentaries just for fun. Um, back when there was an Errols, I loved going to the documentary section and picking out different things we would watch. And then when History Channel became a thing, we would watch History Channel together. And then additionally, my grandparents lived in France. So I visited France quite a lot as a child and was able to you know, go to different uh, castles and uh, cultural places there and museums and things like that. So I just kind of grew up in that environment. So it was always just a part of me, I think. It's funny. I think a lot of people have like a dad or a relative, maybe grandpa, who's really obsessed with history, watches <laughs> History Channel, watches documentaries. It doesn't yeah. always become infectious for the kids, though. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. It did not. I have, I'm the oldest of four and I'm the only one. So. <laughs> What, do you remember like the first ones that you really became passionate about learning more, like the worlds that were really exciting to you? Yeah, so it's actually really morbid. I was extremely interested um, at first uh, when I was eight with Marie Antoinette and the French Revolution. Um, so I found that to be really fascinating. And then probably by the time I was 10, I became really fascinated with the Holocaust. My mom's side of the family is Jewish, so I... Um, kind of felt like a connection there with that, trying to find out some history about the family. So those two things really took root back then, mostly. <laughs> well, it's interesting when you talk about the History Channel, too, because we've seen, uh, you know, there was a point when 
there were historical documentaries on that, uh, you know, shows, uh, whether it's on History Channel, yeah. on A&E, like you could kind of find history at all times. Now, you know, yeah. it's it's either reality shows, you know, like Pawn Stars, or it had yeah. that weird turn toward the supernatural. And so, yeah, like aliens. <laughs> right. So I, I don't know, like there, there was a time when it seemed like history was sort of easier to come by. And now it's in this sort of odd space where you yeah. have to maybe seek it out. Yeah, exactly. I, I like to find a lot of docu-dramas and documentaries, though, um, like on Netflix, and they, they have a great selection there. Well, and so you, you've explored history in several different ventures from blogging, podcasting, books, and I imagine each approach is fairly different between those and that the process that sort of led you to them is fairly different because they're very different mediums. So you come to an idea or a curiosity or some element of history. How do you know which medium is the best way to explore it? That's a really great question, and no one has ever asked me that before. So for my history podcast, that's really just steeped in fact. And I mean, we do talk about books and fiction, uh, fiction books on there. But for the most part, that's something like an, an idea or a topic that we may have come across that we just want to explore. But it's not something that would span an entire novel necessarily or um, that I might have time for. Or maybe it is something that I'm researching for a novel, and I just want to showcase it to... Um, listeners who are interested in possibly that factual topic. Um, as far as fiction writing goes, I usually find through my research um, an interesting aspect about a woman who hasn't really been talked about much or a time period that isn't really illustrated as much. And I really take sort of like a deep dive into that and explore um, the people, the culture, and the different things that went into it and kind of just go with that yeah well and it's that sort of leads to why you're here the book that you're here to talk about and it, it kind of opens the door to as well to the different elements of history and how we engage with it which is that there's sometimes problems with the way history is constructed with who gets emphasized who gets overlooked and i think one of the things that a lot of people have to figure out how to balance or maybe should figure out how to balance when it comes to regularly writing about history is this trick of nostalgia and kind of reckoning with both a romanticized past that one might have some degree of sentimentality for that makes it exciting to keep exploring, but then also some of the uglier realities of those histories and the politics of them. So, I mean, how do you find a, a balance between the two? So, um, obviously, like, I never think we should shy away from the past. It's, you know, we learn and grow and change from the past, things that we've experienced or learned from. So, for me, facing those ugly, reality, ugly realities is really a necessary part of the character growth in whoever it is I'm writing about. And I think it shares an important message um, just for us as readers, because as we read, I think we learn new things. And it's not necessarily that I'm like throwing history or facts or messages at a reader's face while I'm writing it. It's just like we learn from other people's experiences. So as we watch a character grow or the society around them change, we're sort of exploring all of those facets, which includes the ugly stuff. So um, since history and exploring history has been something that you've been uh, passionate about and sort of engrossed in for a lot of your life and, you know, in, in a lot of different ways, uh, one might say that uh, it's sort of a different discipline to sort of tell history, explain history, understand history, and then kind of another one to understand fiction and how to write fiction well and understand how the two can work together and maybe why it makes yeah. sense to add that fictional element. So when does fiction enter the picture for you? Well, obviously, if I'm dealing with, you know, writing about a person's life, for example, Adele's life, I wasn't there um, and I'm not her. So I can't, you know, give you an, an accurate exact picture of what that would be. But when I sort of embody her as a character and I study her as a person, I can bring her back to life just from different pieces of history. Um, and fortunately, she had quite a lot of history that she left behind for us, including diaries and letters and um, lots of things like that, which I was able to study. So I was able to kind of get a little bit more inside her head than I might have from someone else. But the fun thing about making uh, biographical fiction into a novel is getting to watch these historical figures interact with their world around them and their people and the culture that they were immersed in and any sort of specific events that might have happened. But also for her, you know, she's kind of a person that was um, lost a little bit from history. So 
getting to bring her story back to the forefront so people can remember her for um, her part in the, and what she played for the world, I think is, it was, it's fun for me and, and exciting, I think. So I imagine that you, like most people, were probably aware of Fred Astaire before Adele Astaire, but maybe not. So I mean, when, when did they first pop up on your radar? So I think I've always pretty much known who um, Fred Astaire was just from growing up. Um, my grandfather was a big dancer. And so I think I probably heard it from him or, you know, or the radio or TV. I mean, he was a very popular person. Um, but I had no idea that he even had a sister until I was researching one of my um, previous novels. And the um, heroine that I was dealing with in that book um, had written a letter between her and her sister where she mentioned Adele. And um, she was saying how funny she was. And they had had lunch in London. And whenever I see something like that, I'm like, well, who is this person? So I looked her up and was just shocked to find that she had this huge story. You know, she was a Broadway dancer, singer, performer. Um, she married um, the son of a Duke in London. <laughs> she was huge in both New York and London on stage. And then when she got married, she just sort of stepped back from that performing world. And the most funny part about all of that is that when I was reading the various reviews written about their performances when they were a dancing duo, most of the reviewers would say that Adele was the better dancer. So I just think it's funny that during their time of partnership, she was more famous than her brother. And then she sort of just got lost in history. And I mean, is the idea here that she got lost in history in part because she was in fewer movies or is it because we don't remember women in the, in these roles as much or how, what do you ascribe that to? I think it's a little bit of both. You know, um, she wasn't in any movies. She did make half of a movie and then backed out of it because her husband at the time was ill and she needed to go take care of him. Um, but I think that she's forgotten a lot because there is no video of her and sort of like Fred Astaire's relationship with Ginger Rogers took center stage when he became a film star and nobody really remembered Adele only because what they were seeing and what you could see, you know, of future generations was the older movies with him and his other dance partners. And I think another part of that is that, you know, she took a step back from performing to have a family. And so she really pulled herself out of stage life in the 30s. And, you know, that's like almost 100 years ago. So um, not having a video record of what a wonderful dancer she was, I think kind of plays a part in that. And then also the fame of her brother super, superseded that with the other dancers. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Eliza Knight, author of the new novel Starring Adele Astaire, which is available now wherever you get books. Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. It's interesting um, how popular the type of dancing, the song and dance kind of uh, musicals and just the, the sort of style and genre used to be. I mean, like, as you said, 100 years ago. Yeah. Uh, I've been I've been interviewing Whit Stillman, who he's got a lot of dancing in his movies. He made The Last Days of Disco and Metropolitan. And, you know, I, I've been talking to him about sort of the use of dancing and singing outside of the context of maybe a straight musical, but really in general, outside of <laughs> this one guy or like your magic mics, the occasional musical like La La Land or West Side Story. Uh, it's kind of like there might be a few every year that include that, uh, you know, that sort of that love and that passion that comes through in nonverbal mm -hmm. uh, dancing. And uh, obviously at the time, 100 years ago, that was one of the major genres. It was one of the major things on stage and screen that people wanted to see. Uh, wh why do you think people are drawn to musicals and dancing? What, what, what's the magic of it? So I think there's something really powerful about music. It speaks to our moods and evokes different memories. You know, if you hear a song that happened during an important phase of your life, you remember that phase of your life immediately. And, you know, back in the day of traveling bards, music was the way that we spread stories and history. And I think just dancing obviously naturally comes with music, you know, your body swaying, whatever. Or babies, when they hear music, kind of start dancing a little bit. And if people have good news, they do a little happy dance. So I think it just speaks to how expressive music can be. And as far as like performance with music, you can think of like dark ballets or like a 
melancholic opera or musical comedy, all those emotions are really expressed through song and dance. And I'm sad that it's not something that's still more popular because I really enjoy it. And um, the one thing I would like to say is that you can listen to a couple of songs that Fred and Adele uh, recorded for records um, of their, like from their shows. They were like the more popular songs from whatever plays they had done. And they're on YouTube and Spotify and things like that. And when you listen to them, you can really get a sense for the emotion of the show. And it almost like you can visualize in your mind um, the comedy of it and the art of it. Uh, David Mitchell wrote a book called Utopia Avenue a few years ago, which was about a band. And he talked in, I think, almost every interview he did about it, about how difficult he found it to write about music. Well, you know, it's a novel, so you can't hear it. You know, if it's a movie or TV, you get to actually hear it and experience it. And he would, he said this quote, which I think he said maybe comes from Frank Zappa, but he said he really resonated with this sentiment, which is uh, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. And there's just a, a divide that, to- that can't be totally reached between the two. Did you find it difficult to write about dancing and music in, in your book? It is really extremely difficult to choreographic so a lot of times I will have to get up and and do the moves like around my office which I'm sure my dogs thought was really interesting um but so that is it is hard to do that but I often found too that when I was writing those specific scenes I would listen to music and it helped really set the tone for whatever verbiage I was using um and that really helped me um I don't think I could do it in silence honestly so have you always been a big fan of musicals then? I think so. Um, when I was younger, like really young, my dad would take us to like Punch and Judy plays and like any sort of like little children's, it was at a children's theater. So any sort of little musicals they had going on. Um, so it was just something that I've always done. And, and we used to go to New York City to watch Broadway shows. And I've continued that with my kids. They love uh, musical theater. So um, Yeah. Do you, do you think something gets lost uh, between seeing a live performance and seeing it filmed or listening to a recording of it? Yes, I do. So um, I think there's something different about live performance because you sort of feel like you're a part of it. And, you know, the performers on stage can look at you and you could see them looking at you. And, and there can also be some interaction between the people on stage and the audience. So that's like a totally different medium. But I don't think it takes away from the enjoyment of watching movies or television that um, have music. I know my um, kids love Glee and I've watched that with them and I think it's hilarious. And then we sing together some of the songs. So it become an interactive performance on our end. But um, I think that there is definitely a difference. I, I like the, the live stuff better. Did you ever try to do performance, whether dancing or singing or anything like that? Yeah, so I um, I was a piano player and I was also, um, I worked at, uh, I was an actress on stage for community theater. I'm not very coordinated, so I was never a dancer myself, but my older daughter was a competitive dancer when she was in high school and I really enjoyed watching her performances. That's got to be helpful experience to draw from when you're writing this book because you have a, a sense of, it's not, it's not as abstract, right? It, it can sort of come from real yeah. struggles and then real uh, triumphs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So uh, as far as writing a book like this, what does the research process look like? So for me, I kind of had a head start because I had discovered um, Adele while I was doing research on another book and sort of took that deep dive so that I could write up a proposal and present it to my editor. But um, after I had the contract, basically what it involves is I read everything I can about that is written about Adele and her brother, um, about stage life, about the time period that they um, lived in. And then I also was able to spend two days at um, the Howard Gottlieb Archival Center at Boston University, which houses the Adele Astaire collection. So there's a diary or several diaries there, letters, um, scrapbooks, uh, articles and reviews from the time. There was even a little costume there just a, an enormous uh, collection that was really, really helpful for my research. And then also just having been to Broadway many times and that was you know, sort of an experience. And then I went to London to see the theater where they danced. Um, and I've been to Ireland several times, which is where she spent a lot of her time as well. 
So when you say you read as much as you can find, what does that look like? Like how many, how many books, how many articles are we talking here? Oh my gosh. So I probably have at least 20 or so books that I read. And then the articles are countless. Um, and anything that I could find online or through archives, I just devoured it. And um, like I said, I, I spent two whole days in that archive center reading from morning until evening when they basically kicked me out um, everything that there was to know about their life experience on stage and also personally. How do you know when you're ready to start writing and you're done with the research or are you ever done with the research? So you're never done. Um, and even now, like I can't look at the book is already being printed and I can't look at it anymore because if I do, I'll be like, oh, but I should have like added this here. It's just an ongoing process. And even in edits, you know, you have a copy editor that will say, oh, is can you fact check this or can you add this to this? And so then you're still doing a little bit more research there. And I also second guess myself. And so I'll re-research something, even though I know I already saw it and I already wrote it down and I know that I'm right. But just to double check, because um, for me, the research is really important, especially when you're talking about real people. It's not, you know, even when I'm writing fictional characters, I still want to make sure I have the time period and everything that's going on in their world correct. But when you're dealing with real people, that gets a little bit more nerve wracking. So it's just never ending. <laughs> so like, what are the rules that you set for yourself then in terms of what you're allowed to take liberties with and what needs to be accurate? So... Um, that is such a hard question to answer because there's a point where you're just sort of creating art too, and you're just writing. So basically what I try to do is I pick the important, um, turning points in a character's life. And I decide those are the ones that I'm going to deal with. And, um, I might have to just sort of skim over other ones or keep them out completely because you only have so many words that you can put on the page. And then, um, Obviously, any sort of interaction that she's having some with someone, I'm inside her head. So I'm creating those thoughts. Those aren't, I mean, she could have had those thoughts. I'm not sure. But they're not necessarily her thoughts. They're more fictionalized because I'm not sitting with her and her telling me how she felt in that certain situation. And to create a character arc for a biographical historical fiction novel is a lot like when you're creating um, a character arc for a fictional you know, character. They have their highlights and their low points and their growth points and all of that. So you try to hit upon those things as you're creating the story and also making sure that it's still an interesting story. Um, so I know that's probably not really confusing <laughs> all of that, but I think, you know, a lot of it is fiction because obviously like she wasn't sitting here telling me how she felt in that situation or what the food tasted like or what, you know, um, I can guess that her body really hurt after dancing for 20 years. So I can write that, but I don't know where exactly her aches and pains were. So obviously that stuff's sort of made up, but not really. So it sounds like it sort of starts then from um, the, the general arc has to be rooted in real history, real events, and it's the the details right. where you get to have fun exactly. and play around with it more. Yeah. So as far as the arc that you came up with here, you also have this character, Violet. So how do, how do you decide when you're looking at, you're going from research, you're sort of saying, all right, I think I see the arc here. I need this character to be inserted in. Where, where did that enter into your thinking? So I really wanted to have, um, I just had this idea that I really wanted to be able to play with um a character that was juxtaposed against another one. So while Adele is having her high moments, Violet's having low moments, and then they sort of swing opposite. So when Adele is sort of feeling low, Violet is feeling high. And the big thing I wanted to study with Violet was what it was like to struggle to get to the high point. Because when we start the book, we're in Adele's point of view in the 20s, where she's really sort of just starting to make it. So we didn't really see the struggles that she had to get there. And I thought it was important to highlight that just because it wasn't easy going and it, it never is easy going for anyone in, in entertainment, whether you're a star or not, you kind of always have to keep one upping yourself just to keep in that position. So for her, it's, it was like a fictionalized way of showing that struggle. And so, I mean, so the, the character having this fictional character be uh, this central part of the narrative too. It gives you other wiggle room as well because you can uh, you can invent 
even while the research is being accurate, yes. right? Yes. So did you see your, I mean, I, I imagine to write a book like this, you also, even though it's rooted in history, in fact, you, you find something that you relate to in these characters or in these real people. So what, what was it that let you find that emotional connection with Adele or Violet? Um, I think I connected with both of them in the struggles to find um, your place sort of in the world and to see what is important to you and sort of make those dreams happen or even just to sort of dare to dream. Um, that's like a huge thing that I'm always talking about with other people when they ask me to say like, oh, what's one thing that I should do? And I'm saying like, just keep going with your dream. And, you know, I know it's risky, but just keep doing it. So I think for me, that's probably the biggest thing that I connected with on them is that forward momentum and working through discouragement and just always keeping that dream in your periphery and working towards that goal. Um, I think a lot of people forget that, you know, that's important. You know, they think about well, we all have responsibilities and obligations and things like that. And so sometimes we get bogged down in those things and forget that we should also be seeking our dreams um, because we only have this one life. And I feel like we should all get some happiness out of it. Uh, it it's an interesting dramatic tension, right? Because in theory, expressing yourself, turning your passion into art, should be this sort of freeing, cathartic experience that gives you great pleasure. And mm -hmm. sometimes it is, and other times it's the root of a lot of angst and drama and sadness. <laughs> yes. uh, but I don't know, the, the perseverance of it is sort of, even if it's sort of like, if you're not getting that positive emotion out of your art now, it's sort of hoping that at some point you'll find that again. And I imagine <laughs> that's a struggle that probably exists for writing books as well as dancing. Yes, and it, it happens at varying degrees throughout the writing process. Um, oftentimes in the middle of a book, I think, what am I doing? Why am I even writing this book? Or who do, who do I think I am taking on this project? This is crazy. Um, and then at the end, when you're, you know, barreling towards that deadline, you're like, oh my gosh, this was such a bad idea. And then there's that freeing moment at the end where you're like, oh my God, I did it. And I love it. And so... There's a lot of up and down. <laughs> I'm talking with Eliza Knight, author of the new novel Starring Adele Astaire, which covers the often overlooked historical figure of Fred Astaire's sister. Starring Adele Astaire is available now wherever you get books. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. Hello, my name is Chloe Fowler. I am calling because I am a Nebraskan that will be leaving the state. I just graduated from UNO and will be relocating to Virginia to get my master's in public policy. I'm leaving Nebraska because one, there's not any graduate program for what I'm interested in. Two, the politics are so divisive and there's no compassion left. And three, I want to study the unicameral and research it and come back. And hopefully it's not gone to complete so that I can come back and still advocate for it the same way that many, many institutional leaders have, like Senator Michaela Kavanaugh, Senator John McAllister, Ernie Chambers, and so many more. So, yeah. calling for Riverside Chats. Um, my wife and I are both educators, and we moved to Nebraska five years ago to work in the education field here. We are hired um, by institutions here in Nebraska. And we are leaving, we are moving. Uh, we began these plans really last year, and as we started to see the climate in Nebraska, really, really um, get bad for both education and, and for just basic living. And if there's anything that confirms our choice, um, it's the passage of this monstrous anti-trans, anti-abortion bill that's going to hurt people. It's going to hurt our students. 
it's going to lead to devastating outcomes for populations that we teach, for the people who are really vulnerable. I, I, I admire everybody who's able to stay here and fight the good fight and try and support students, but it's really hard. And so we have to go somewhere else where we, we're not fighting fight every day. So that's why we're leaving Nebraska. And it's unfortunate because we really thought that we might be able to make a life here and, you know, live here and retire here. But that's not in the cards. All right. Thank you. Bye. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. You can find the backlog of all of our episodes wherever you get podcasts. And while you're there, we'd love it if you gave us a review. Today, I'm talking with Eliza Knight, author of the new novel, Starring Adele Astaire, which follows the story of Fred Astaire's often overlooked sister. Starring Adele Astaire is available now wherever you get books. And here's the rest of our conversation. Well, and uh, as someone who's had a, a sort of relationship as maybe a fan or just being aware of Fred Astaire and his his musicals, his dancing, his songs, I wonder, does the course of writing this or really any kind of project where you have to do so much research and then really get in the heads of these characters, turn them into people who you can write about in this much depth, I would imagine that probably changes your relationship with the subjects to some extent, right? Is it is, is your relationship with Fred yeah. Astaire different now than it was when you started to write this book? Well, yeah, it's, I know it sounds silly, but I mean, you almost feel closer to the people because you've been studying them so much and you've been in their relationship. You know, I had to write a lot about the um, sibling relationship between Fred and Adele and how much they loved each other and how much they really relied on each other. So when I see him um, in videos or or movies that I've been watching, um, I think more about, wow, what a great brother versus also what a great dancer. So I guess I just look at them more in a personal way um, versus just as a star. Well, it's got to be something too, when, when you don't really know exactly who a person is, you don't know them in that much depth because you mainly know right. them through their art, that when you do the research, I'm sure sometimes it's it's a nice that, oh, okay, they are, there's these good qualities that I can admire that are different. Yeah. Other times it's probably the opposite. We're sort of like, oh, yikes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. And and I always joke around because people are like, oh, what would you do if you met so-and-so? And I say, I actually would probably never want to meet whoever it is because it'll ruin whatever idea I have in my head of who they are. <laughs> have, have there been times in the past where you've written about somebody and your experience changed in a, a more negative way? Oh, I'm sure there has been. Um, I've written about a lot of, you know, even Henry VIII, he's still terrible. Um one of the women that I wrote about in Henry VIII's court was sort of an anti-heroine. And I went to her story thinking like, um, wow, she's a really vicious person. I would love to study her and see what made her be so vicious in real life. And then I sort of like started sympathizing with her in her plight and what her life was like. And I, you know, felt like, oh, but she was so nasty in history. Like, But now I'm like, oh, but I feel bad for her. <laughs> Well, is it, I mean, that, that's a that's a nice spin on it, right? Which is uh, there, there maybe yeah. are, there's the negative elements, but empathy can uh, go a long way. Um, yeah. So you said that um, starring Adele Astaire came out of research for your uh, a previous book that you had written. In this, in the research yeah. process of writing this one, did did some new idea or interest spark for you? Um, kind of. So I really was very fascinated by the idea of the Dollar Princess, and this was something that um, American women who had a lot of money, their families had a lot of money, you know, sort of like the Vanderbilts and all of that would pay into British society basically by marrying into aristocracy. So they were bringing their American money to poorer British arist aristocrats um, and, you know, gaining a title because of it. So for example, um, Winston Churchill's mother was an American dollar princess. And to some extent, Adele is considered to be a dollar princess because she brought her money to the marriage to her um, husband, uh, Ca uh, Lord Cavendish. And, you know, she went into the castle that they were gifted by her, by his family in Ireland and put in all new plumbing and like refurbished all the bathrooms and all of this stuff. So I'm really fascinated by that, but I can't say yet what 
the book is because um, we're still working on negotiations for it. But I can say that I definitely had some inspiration from my research with Adele um, into a future book. So uh, Adele Astaire, it's interesting because both Fred and Adele have these roots to Omaha, to Nebraska. And Fred Astaire mm -hmm. is somebody I think probably everyone here has some knowledge of. Adele Astaire is not someone I had heard of until we got the pitch to do this episode of this show. So when you think about how this book might impact the legacy, either of kind of reclaiming this person who was part of a story of someone who a lot of people do still celebrate, uh, but then also mm -hmm. just, just to be aware, to know the name. I mean, that's, that's its own sort of change. So it sounds like that was a goal when you started. I mean, how, how do you think about the, the legacy of Adele Stare from a book like this? Are you hoping that it can have this kind of impact of changing people's relationship with Fred by adding this missing component? Yes, I actually have this major dream. So like I said, there's no video of Adele anywhere. Um, even though we have video of other dancers on stage and other performances from the time, there's nothing. So I'm kind of hoping, and this is probably a long shot, but I'm hoping that some obscure person will be going through their attic after having read this book and find this reel that is like this recording of them dancing together that no one's ever heard of. That would be my major dream. But the reality dream is probably just that I really want people to know who she was and um, to remember her and remember her um, sort of just so that her legacy stays alive as a woman performer who was kind of, you know, helpful to other women performers. And um, I just, I, yeah, I just want to be able to keep her alive, basically. Well, it seems like fiction can be useful in that sense, because just like to be aware of a statistic or a fact about her is going to be a little bit different than asking you to engage in the emotional journey of reading this book from her perspective, at least in part. Right. right. So, I mean, do you, do you mm -hmm. think fiction has uh, some unique qualities in an attempt to reclaim some element or person from history and impact their legacy like this? I think so, because you find them to be more endearing um, and you feel like, you know, like you got to know them. Um, even if it was through a fictional account, most of the things are things that really happened to her, to her brother, and to their friends and family. So I think that books have a way of connecting us to those people. I mean, even think about fictional characters. If you love a book, you remember that character and they never even existed, but they exist in your brain. So if you get to know a character and fall in love with them and they really did exist, then you might sort of dive down into some sort of research rabbit hole of your own to kind of find out more about them or or maybe it sets someone on a path to watch a lot of Fred's movies who knows <laughs> well yeah I think a lot of people operate from this idea especially if you're not really invested in learning more about history that it's kind of mostly figured out that it's static and that uh, there's not a whole lot more to be discovered other than I don't know like maybe you find like an artifact or something like an Indiana Jones kind of situation so I mean uh, yeah for you, do you remember when you, you started to realize that there's this element of history that can go beyond just sort of learning the things that are accepted and then starting to change people's relationship with history? I mean, that's probably something that happened to me as a kid just from reading. Um, I remember I read my first biographical fiction. I think I was 14, and it was The Autobiography of Henry VIII by Margaret George. And at the time, I don't think I understood that biographical fiction or an autobiography wasn't real. I thought I was reading a real account that he had written and it like made me just sort of obsessed with him and his court and his children and all of his wives. So I think that, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I think it just has like a way that it could just embed in your brain. Why do you think you're so interested in Henry VIII and his wives and that whole world? Because it's so crazy. So, I mean, the things that he did and that he did to his wives and like his court and everybody that was surrounding him, the things they did to advance themselves or to not be put on the chopping block, it was so dramatic that it feels fake. And I think for me, I think it's the shock factor of it that, wow, that actually happened. This is crazy. This is like an actual movie that someone made up to be like a horror story, but it's actually real. And I think a lot of history is like that for me, even, you know, the French Revolution, like that really happened. And they actually invented a machine 
that they could execute people three at a time in one minute just to, you know, get rid of the people faster. It was, you know, that's just wacko. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find uh, as you've been doing this for a while now, I mean, does, does history still have the capacity to shock you, to surprise you? Or do you, do you feel like you, you mostly know what you're going to find when you start a project like this? I think it does have the ability to shock me, but I think also like I'm still shocked by real life a lot of times. So, you know, modern life, um, anything, I mean, even if it's happened before, I'm still shocked when it happens again. Um, so I think that's just sort of my personality. I'm a shocked type of person. <laughs> yeah, people, uh, I always think when people talk about like, oh, history will judge that person or history is going to look back on this and think blah, blah, blah. And that, that seems like a, a really confident bet because there's a lot of factors that go into how history is recorded and how, you know, 100 years from now, you know, the, the last five, 10 years will be thought of, uh, you know, like, do, do you yeah. ever think about what history of our time will look like in, in the future? Yes. In fact, I was so last week, I was on a writing retreat with several of my um, writing friends, and we watched the docudrama, uh, The Last Czar. And um, again, I was just shocked, all the things I learned, I knew about the massacre of the Romanov family, but I learned way more while watching this docudrama, which is like, biographical fiction, but it's real. Um, and the, we started having this whole conversation literally about what you just said, like in a hundred years from now, they're going to look back at our history and, and are they going to be shocked about all the things that are happening in our world right now? And um, I think yes, because there's a lot of shocking things that are happening right now that sort of seem normal to us because we're in it. Um, that a hundred years from now, people are going to look back and they're going to be in a totally different world at that point with different thoughts and different things that are happening. And then they'll look at us and think the same thing. Like, wow, how did this happen? And, and um, why didn't anyone stop this or, you know, whatever that may be. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, one difference though would be that we've got so much record of, you know, audio of yes. video. And so it, in theory, at least in a hundred years, you'd be able to sort of see, here's what the people were like, here's what they were doing. And there's just so much, like, I don't know if they'll be combing through cable news 24 hours to try to figure it out, but uh, that's Maybe. fairly unique to have this comprehensive of a record, right? Well, yeah. And I think also, um, not to get like too deep into the weeds here, but I think also they're going to have to sift through what's real and what's not because with like AI, like now they can use people's faces to... Um, make them say things and it's not really them saying stuff or they can create pictures like Photoshop and they were doing Photoshop even a hundred years ago, but um, not Photoshop exactly, but their own version of Photoshop. Um, so I think they'll have to, you know, what, what will be the truth and what won't be? It's going to be really weird. <laughs> if you're just joining us, I'm talking with Eliza Knight, author of the new novel starring Adele Astaire, which is available now wherever you get books. What's on your mind this week? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. Well, I'm glad to hear you talk about being shocked by the world today because I, I often feel that way too. I feel like I I can't get can't quite wrap my mind around if things are weirder, stranger now, or if things yeah. have always just been kind of weird and baffling. Do you get the sense right. that it's, it's always been that way? It's just that we're living through it, so we're feeling it more directly? Yes, I, I think that's it because, you know, we're in it and this is our world. So we're going to be more like, wait, what? I Why is this happening? And then if you look back in history, the same thing happened to those people. And it's sort of just a cycle, not necessarily the same exact uh, things are happening, but sometimes they are. But I think people just, you know, in general, there's always going to be something and it's always going to surprise whoever wasn't on that side of it. I don't know. Do you ever feel drawn to writing about uh, contemporary times? Yeah. Um, I love thriller. Um, and I sometimes really think about writing a modern day thriller or like a crime uh, novel. I would really love to do that. So is that, that's, but history is the priority now because uh, that's sort of like the, the niche you're carving out for yourself or why history? Yeah. So, um, my friends like to make fun of me because I like to do everything. So I would probably continue doing both just because I really love history. So 
I could see myself writing like one historical a year and one thriller a year or something like that. And probably terrifying my agent by saying that. <laughs> but, you know, I've, I've always sort of had my hand in all of the different pods. It's, it's why I like to do um, podcasting as well as blogging and um, freelance writing and then, you know, writing books. Um, I'm sort of like a collector of jobs. <laughs> well, so in your in your hope that there might be some more tangible history of Adele out there, uh, I wonder in your research process. I mean, was was there any uh, attempt to go back? Like in Omaha, I don't know that there's a whole lot of this stuff out here because it's sort of where they started, not necessarily where they got so famous. But was there a Nebraska component to your research at all? There was a minor um, component only because the majority of the book takes place in later years. Um, so just a little bit. Yeah. Well, what was that? What was the Nebraska part? Well, I have a friend who lives out there. So she went by the house where they were born and took pictures for me. Um, and I basically just sort of researched the family and, um, where the girl or the girls, where Adele and Fred learned to dance, were like the first, um, dance area. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I've been talking to authors a lot over the last few years where when we started this show, it was sort of like right before everything shut down. And so there are a bunch of authors who were sort of like, well, I'm just doing, I'm just staring at my computer. I thought I'd sort of be on a tour by now. I thought I'd be out doing events. Uh, do, you, do you have uh, events planned? Is there any chance maybe that you might come to Nebraska as sort of a part of the, the uh, Astaire connection as you roll out the book? Yeah, so we're working on my uh, tour right now, preparing all the different places I'm going to go. And um, I have a good friend who's another author out there who actually lives in Nebraska. And um, we've chatted a little bit about going to one of the bookstores there. So that is in the works. So the book is coming out soon here. Uh, Starring Adele Astaire is something where I think, like I said, a lot of people are familiar with Fred. They maybe aren't so familiar with Adele. I think the idea of claiming, reclaiming history or illuminating elements of history that people aren't familiar with is very exciting. So, I mean, the, the book's out there. Is there anything else, uh, anything we didn't talk about with the book that you think you're like, oh, people should know this, people should look for this, or just here's a good pitch? I think the biggest thing that I want people to take away from this book is um, enjoyment, obviously, but also the relationship between Fred and Adele and their mother, which was kind of um, different. So they're, when they were younger, their dad um, sort of sent them, the three of them, to New York City. He stayed behind in Omaha to work and sent them money to sort of live. And uh, Fred was five and Adele was eight, and they started their training in New York City to become performers. So I think I want people to understand that she had been dancing for so long and with her brother, like from the time they were children until they were adults that it took, I mean, almost 20 ish years before they hit it big. And that is like, that is the long game there. Right. So um, I think that's one thing I want people to understand is that it's not just something that was handed to them. They really worked so hard to get where they were. And um that was really just eye-opening to me. Like I thought Fred just sort of came onto the scene at some point and became famous in movies, but to to learn about all of the years of struggle and study that it took to get there was really fascinating. And so you've got the book, you've got blogs, you've got podcasts, you've got so much going on. Where can people go to get a sense of both this book and then the rest of all your projects that you have ongoing? Sure. Um, the best place to go is my website, which is elizanight.com. And then I am also on, um, well, not all the social medias, but I am on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So they can find me on those places. And then I dabble in TikTok, but I'm really not um, good at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate getting a chance to learn about Adele Stare, to talk to you and to get a sense of your craft, your career. Uh, so thank you so much for being on the show today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. This was great. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, And our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today, and while you're there, we'd love it if you gave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock. Here is The Way You Look Tonight from the Fred Astaire movie Swing Time. 
softly low When the world is cold I will feel a glow Just thinking of you And the way you But you're lovely With your smile so warm And your cheeks so soft There is nothing for me But to love you Just the way you look tonight With each word Your tenderness grows Tearing my fear apart And that laugh That wrinkles your nose Touches my foolish heart Lovely Never, never change Keep that breathless charm, won't you please? Hello, my name is Stephen Watson. I am a born resident of the state of Nebraska. I was born in Omaha, Nebraska. I've lived here, I've been educated here, and I continue to work here. Seeing a lot of the policies that have been passed lately that are hateful, stagnant, and even backwards-facing towards the trans youth, gun control, and abortion, has honestly made me debate leaving the state and taking my family away is more than anything else. I am in love with a very wonderful trans individual. They bring me more joy than anything on this planet. They are a good, standard person that works at a public library. They're no harm to anyone. They've never been. They've done nothing but stand up for individuals and try to protect them. The fact that these laws alienate and target that person, my love, is far unacceptable. As a member of District Number 6, I applauded and supported my state senator, Michaela Kavanaugh, in her filibuster to try to prevent these laws. Seeing LB 574 be enacted has made me seriously debate leaving the state for someone that more aligns with the defensive position of the people I care for. The fact that open carry laws without permits and these other hateful legislation, it it just hurts to live in this state. I want to stay here to help protect the people that don't have another voice. I want to stay here because my family's here. I was born here. But seeing the continued hatred that is spewed by our politicians is far more difficult to stomach. Watching our representatives and the corruption of our governor nominating Pete Ricketts to a senator seat is beyond baffling and shameful. I've never wanted to leave the state more. I've wanted to move to a different location to make my family safe. And it hurts to feel like I wonder how many people that I'll be abandoning that could use another voice to show them that they're not alone.